Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. When you were uh, driving to work today as an exploited worker, uh, how many white sedans did you see? Quite a few. Uh, white sedans, saw some non-sedans, some trucks, some vans, some passenger vans and commercial vans. And I saw a lot of individual owned and commercial vehicles, but I did not see a lot of public transportation. So how many different types of vehicles would you say there are in existence? You just named maybe five or so, but there are more. The rental car companies love to give you the option of different sizes to make you, I guess, feel good about yourself. So there's a compact or subcompact, then there's like the midsize and there's the large and there's like the crossovers and the SUVs and large SUVs. There's probably like only a few categories of vehicles, but they like to pretend that there's a million different types. For me, really, does it have four wheels and does it use a car or does it use a truck frame? That's it. Everything else is just sort of built around that those constructs. So a mid-sized sedan, all those pinch-welded vehicles versus a truck-bodied big van or even minivan. Everything else, I mean, it's, it's literally just assembly of different sheet metals and random things. So how many different car companies exist that make a similar white sedan? Oof, let's go. Let's go um, Ford, GM, uh, Fiat Chrysler. They're one company now. Um, Toyota, Hyundai, Honda, um, Subaru, Daewoo. Um, and then like 45 Chinese companies, um, BMW, Audi, Mercedes, Volkswagen, uh, what's that shitty one? Mini Cooper, Kia. Kia. Um, oh, what's that? Scion? That's Toyota. Shitty Scion. That's Toyota. Is it? I thought it was another sure Korean company. Okay. What else? Tesla. You forgot Tesla. Tesla. Oh, they're a piece of shit company. Yeah, Tesla. Uh, that also. What's that one that's, oh, Lord's Motors make those shitty trucks that no one's actually ever bought? They don't make white sedans, you're saying? <laughs> they don't make anything. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm really saying. So there's 30-ish, let's say, companies that make a car with a sedan frame that has basically four occupants and a steering wheel. Yeah. Why is there so much redundancy in the manufacturing space around car manufacturing specifically? Uh, if no one knows this, let's, let's go through the ecosystem. The car manufacturers of the world, unless you're a Tesla that does weird shit like put bolts or things in the wrong spots, gets most of their components through an OEM supplier. Original equipment manufacturer. The OEM is a Toyota, GM, Chrysler, Ford, all those those assholes. If you think about then the, the tier one, tier two, and tier three suppliers, they're the ones that supply out to the big OEMs. So a tier one is somebody who delivers high volume and uh, important components to a vehicle. So you can think of like um, windows or you know tires, uh, all the electronic components, seats. They come from different companies. Um, I mean, you have Flexgate. You've got you got so many companies that that are OEM suppliers out there, and then you have your tier twos that supply your tier ones. So you know, if you're a large tier one supplier and you need electronic components, you don't manufacture your own components. You hire that out. You subcontract it out. You may design the headlights, but you're not going to make the headlights. You're going to go to a, a subcontract like Dana or somebody that that's smaller, or like uh, United Technologies or somebody who can do spot manufacturing and fill you in. Or Lear. And then from there, you have your tier threes, which they give small components that are not necessarily designed for the vehicles, like 3M, um, Henkel, 
like a glue companies or, or assembly jobbies, people that add value, but they're not necessarily large components or, or, or really important design considerations, just basically bought off the shelf. So that that's the considerations. And they all sell the same fucking components to all the OEMs. So all your bonding tape, all of your you know rivets and bolts and all, all the all the supplies like that all come from the same thing. There's no new engineering. All your windows are from the same formula. All the tinting is the same formulation. All the seats are made from the same foam. They're made on the same machines. It's all the same shit. The electric servo motors that you have that moves your seat forward and backwards is the same servo motor in every single car manufacturer in the entire world. And I'm saying everyone, but there's a couple different ones, sure. But it's not like every car has its own servo motors or or own LEDs or own materials for headliners. Like that, that is all solved problems. That just, just gets integrated. So basically, you have 45 companies that are all make frames and drivetrains, and they assemble and push it together like an iPhone, and they sell it to you. And I don't know why. So each of these companies has their own motivations for profit. Conceptually, you think of Ford, you think of they make pickup trucks. You think of Chevy, they make. SUVs, I guess, the Suburban. Yep. There's some sort of brand loyalty associated with each one of these American car companies. And that brand loyalty in some way, shape, or form pushes the profit motives of each of these companies. While Chevy can build a white sedan, we'll call it the Chevrolet Impala, it competes with the Toyota Camry, which is a white sedan. The differentiator has very little to do with the quality of the car. It's effectively brand loyalty, right? It, it's brand loyalty and, and regional manufacturing capabilities. Because of tariffs, you don't ship cars. I mean, primarily the reason why there's not one or two car companies in the world is that every every car is made by an infinite amount of workers, and you're basically just protectionism on jobs. Because you're gonna you're gonna get to the point where you could basically automate the assembly of a single car, which is what Russia did, and you don't need thirty five thousand design engineers. You don't need seventy five foundries. Because there's no reason for them. There's a shitload of redundancy in car manufacturing is the moral of the story here, right? You know, 2008 was exceptionally bad. And you, and the reaction from the government was that no one's buying anything. There's a lack of capital. There's a lack of manufacturing because nobody can buy. And what happened is there's a, there's a phase delay between good and bad years in automotive. It's very cyclical. And the government had to prop up GM, Ford, and Chrysler because it actually meant hundreds of thousands of jobs. Because it's not just the job of the manufacturer itself. You know, the 80,000 plus, 100,000 plus of different manufacturers, you know, OEMs. It's also the tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, and then the supplies of all those. Like, like literally the, the the local greasy spoon diner where the executives go for an offsite retreat every single day to talk business only exists because there's a large corporate office there that can like supply money into the local economy. So the redundancy of car manufacturing is just one sector actually is functionally a jobs program for a large portion of the United States. And if the redundancy or the inefficiency of having 45 companies that make white sedans were removed, you would have a massive unemployment crisis. Oh God, it would be so insane. What are the used car salesmen going to do? And I don't even mean that jokingly. I mean, people make money by going to auctions from seized property and then they sell it to you again. And, and even though that's a shitty job under capitalism, it still exists because it, it still exists. And so a lot of the reasons why we don't have public transportation is because we have a jobs program. We have the U.S. military with a jobs program. We have hospitals and we have we have automotive companies. So as transportation becomes a more necessary but also simultaneously more inefficient process, there are more cars on the road now. 
there's some discussion about there being maybe what's called peak automotive, which is at what point do people need to stop buying cars because it just doesn't economically make sense. You had that whole psychotic break that Gartner and all the big to-do assholes in the consultancy space did where, you know, you had Tesla talking nonsense about self-driving cars. and You had all this um, advanced driver assistance systems, ADAS talk happening where, oh, it's going to enable you to buy your car and lease it and your car will be used 24-7 instead of it being used, you know, 15 hours out of your day. Because you literally buy a car so that you can use it to go in from work and get groceries and go do stuff. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, honestly, half hour or to an hour a day of use if you have a long commute. So, 7 to 10 hours a week, maybe, you spent on a car and you're spending, so that's 40 hours a month and you're spending, what, $500 between insurance, upkeep, and in your in your payment. It's like $12 an hour to drive your vehicle, which doesn't seem like a lot of money until you realize that, you know, you have to work in order to afford it. And you could just as easily, you know, not have to drive into work if you had to work from home. At what point does your vehicle, is it a, a tool for you to use to in order to make capital go forward versus to use to make it as a moneymaker? There's an entire group of people that are thinking, hey, you only use your car for an hour. What if we could somehow make money on the other 23 hours? And if you could time slice everybody's car, you would need less cars. And that's what derives this idea of having peak cars or peak vehicles. There's a natural slowdown then of car manufacturing, which is incompatible with this idea of it being a jobs program. The other thing that's incompatible with car manufacturing being a jobs program is this idea of self-driving cars, like you said with Tesla. Tesla has an absolute dog shit idea where they think they can do it with computer vision and machine learning and it's absolute trash. Trash. An actual solution to self-driving cars would be something like having cars linked with each other and reporting on their status and having it all be centrally planned by some sort of like a 3D model representation of the road, where cars are, what their acceleration is, where they want to go. And it's not you driving, it's a system driving with basically cars evenly spaced going the same speed. Yep conceptually, if cars are even necessary. So that gets into a discussion about edge computing and the Internet of Things. Each one of these different car companies is going about trying to do driverless technology in their own way, and there's no overlap or industry standard. Tesla thinks they're going to solve the problem with vision, like I said, and it's, from a technical perspective, absolute dog shit, and it's going to kill people, and it's never going to work, and there's no panacea of this panning out to be this great, wonderful thing. There's no way it's going to work. The only solution is having cooperation between all the different car manufacturers and unifying around some standard. Every single major car manufacturer has an entire lab dedicated to trying to solve this problem. And so they're going to waste resources on, are we going to use a laser? Are we going to use a spinning laser? Are we going to use 960? Are we going to use 1080? What what frequencies are we going to use? How are we going to encode this? Where should the sensors be? Should we use a Waymo sensor, which is this big giant dome on the top of a car? Should we have independent you know, ultrasonic sensors all around the vehicle? But essentially planned government-assisted program or government-forced program means that everybody uses similar data sets. And there's no reason to reinvent it because you already have everything mapped. And you can share through communication basically one connected vehicle. And that gets another part. It's called connected vehicle. It's a literal thing that they said was going to happen under 5G, but it really only means connected vehicles of the same manufacturer of a certain model and year. So when we talk about edge computing, what edge computing is, is a portion of the Internet of Things. And the Internet of Things is this idea that everything's on the Internet. And at the edge of the network, you can have your refrigerator and it can tweet if it wants to. So your fridge is on the edge of the network. It's like the last thing in line where it does computing. 
And this applies to cars because arguably you could have a car be on the edge and the car would communicate with the Internet of Things in this interconnected fashion. And that would be a good centrally planned feature that would reduce traffic congestion, but it doesn't solve the problem of how do we deal with this massive redundancy in auto manufacturing that is a jobs program. So there's two competing goals to the Internet of Things. One is we have all this processing power in a leaf, basically, and we want to exploit it. That's where stuff like Bitcoin comes in, where, oh, I'm, I'm wasting clock cycles and I could be wasting electricity and burning fossil fuels instead. That contributes nothing to anybody. And the second goal is this interconnectedness, which actually allows for better resource allocation. So driving is a prime example of all the cars knew about each other and had this 3D representation. You could get to your destination more efficiently, safer. You wouldn't have to actually drive. The car could take care of it. It would actually be controlled, not reactive like Tesla's bullshit is. Yep. But we're never going to get there because manufacturing companies are in their own compartmentalized silos producing their white sedans because it's a jobs program. And we can't interfere with jobs because that would make Joe Mencha look bad or Trump or whatever ghoulish president there's going to be next. And it goes back to post-capitalist stress disorder, PCSD, is to the idea that you don't, as a worker, know what's next because everything's so uncertain. If I said to you, and I'm talking to like an operator or like a line cook somewhere, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? Like the worker has no idea what the next 10 years brings to them because they don't know how to trust technology. They don't know when their job's going to be gone. All they know is that they can trust that they work today. That's it. The PMC, they, they can trust that they may be around too because you know they're the ones making the decisions. And there's this perpetual fear of everybody's going to have their job automated and then you're not going to have a job. And that's a, to some extent, it's a legitimate fear. But in the technology space, you will always need people doing things. You can't have robots build an entire car. No. It's functionally possible to design an entire car and then have robots build it. But the entire process of designing the car requires people that can, for example, weld. You're not going to rig up an entire robot to do like a spot weld test on two joints to do a durability test where you have two robots like try and rip it apart and you see where the fracture is on the the welding seam or something. You need workers for all of that. And automation is used as this boogeyman that says, well, you better be careful and keep doing your job or automation is going to replace it. Never going to happen. Well, you know who's giving away your job. It's not the robot. It's your fucking boss. Your boss is trying to trying to cut your your wages and increase their margins, not because they care about you, but they care about the company, quote unquote. They care about their profits. And it's a real thing. Like They don't care if the robot's more efficient. They care what they can do a job without you for $100,000. But as we see with like Toyota and other manufacturers, robots only take you so far. Automation only takes you so far. For me, the next phase of automation, and I'm really excited about it, is getting rid of financial advisors and getting rid of purchasers and individuals who spend all their time in contract negotiations when you could just let algorithms do it for you. And I say that tongue in cheek, but but really, it's it's all about market pricing. Like if you can remove the human from the market pricing and, and under pure capitalism, you'd have a more efficient system. And this is coming out of the construct of discussions discussing this as a neoliberal or a neoliberal viewpoint. Like the automation that will be disruptive is when they get rid of the PMC. And that's horrifying to people. Absolutely horrifying to people. I mean they didn't give a shit. The PMC didn't care when it happened to the worker, right? But you can you can bet it's gonna be terrifying when all of these all of these third parties like Workday and Salesforce and 
all of these automated calendar things are already starting to do jobs of like the PMC's assistants or um, some of your salespeople, right? The the financial analysts you have to go through and see which one of your customers wasn't buying the right amount of things relative to their peers. That's all done automatically for you. There's no more spreadsheets doing that. That's like literally cranked for you every single day in your CRM. So this automation that that was happening with robots and hardware is now coming through software. And that actually should be the most terrifying thing in the world because once they can automate all that, the intellectual thinking is now gone. And you're back to this divide between white collar and blue collar. And it turns out that at the end of the day, the people that do blue collar work can't have their shit automated as readily as the person that peddles a spreadsheet about whatever corrupt handshake deals they have with the guy over in the other region about whatever product you're buying at below market rate or above market rate because Susie Lou whose kid, you know, is on the, the golf team. And sometimes I get to go out early for a tea time. Absolutely. But with automation means that you're not seeing a better life. You're just seeing a greater percentage of population barely making it. You're basically taking an entire entire segment of population that used to, used to be well-to-do and just dry, grinding them back down to the worker side. Because the capitalists don't care. If you don't own the means of production, you're not. You're not a capitalist. You're a worker. And they can do everything they can to cut it, even if you think they're your friend. They're not. So, so as you talked about, you know, there's, there's a lot of car companies out there with redundancy, and it's a basically a jobs program. What that leads us into in, in discussion is, you know, automation uh, at the manufacturing level can only take us so far. What we're going to start seeing is the automation of the next worker class up, which is the PMC. And as soon as we automate the PMC, you're going to have an entire group of people who have lost their status, who are raised under the status, who don't actually know what it's like to be a worker have existential crises because they're going to be back back up to a corner without the ability to be in the class they think they belong in. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.